We're in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Why don't you open up your Bibles, and uh, once you're there, let's stand and we'll read the word of God together. James three thirteen. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Lord, there's not a day that goes by that we don't need wisdom from above. Almost every one of us in this room is is in a situation or a circumstance, uh, in a trial or a tribulation that, that just requires just your insight from above, Lord. Lord, we need to know how to apply all of the knowledge from the word that we have and and live it out in our life and in our community, Lord. We need wisdom from above. Lord, the leaders of this church as we lead, we need wisdom, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to receive that wisdom today by faith, as James tells us, without doubting. Lord, if there be any wicked way in us as we come here today, if there be anything that would be earthly wisdom, earthly wisdom that would come from hell itself. Lord, we pray that you would just convict us, just overwhelming by your spirit, just what we've been resting and trusting in that is not from you, that is bringing destruction and ruining relationships and is hurtful and hurting, Lord. Uh, Lord, we just, it's not glorifying to you. We want to repent and turn away from it. So speak to us today concerning this, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. Heard a story this week of an angel appearing at a faculty meeting telling the dean that in return for his unselfish and exemplary behavior, the Lord will reward him with his choice of infinite wealth or wisdom or beauty. Without hesitating, the dean selects infinite wisdom. Done, says the angel, and he disappears in a cloud of smoke and a bolt of lightning. Now all heads turn toward the dean as he sits surrounded by a faint halo of light. At length, one of his colleagues whispers, say something. The dean looks at them and says, I should have taken the good looks. It's a joke. First service didn't get it either. Read the Proverbs and you'll see that God is wanting to distribute wisdom to all who would ask for it and receive it by faith. Proverbs says in chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. The Lord would say, choose wisdom if the angel appears. Choose it. Choose it. He stores up wisdom to just distribute to those who would follow him. As we read, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord. Proverbs says elsewhere, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. I love that phrase. And all you're getting, get understanding. Proverbs has a theme behind it that is wisdom for young men. And of course, it has wonderful things for everybody in every stage of life. Regardless of your gender, there's just superb truths there. And yet, 
the theme underneath it is Solomon speaking to his son, saying, my son. Those of you that have sons, you know, you're looking in their eyes. My son, listen to me. Listen. Respond to what I'm saying. Listen. It's the principal thing, that this wisdom. If you can get anything, my son, get understanding. Solomon wrote that to his son. But we know where Solomon got his wisdom. He almost had an angel in the faculty type meeting there in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 through 13, when he was at Gibeon sacrificing there. And he sacrificed over a thousand offerings. And when he was sleeping, the Lord appeared to him and said, ask, what shall I give you? What shall I give you? And Solomon, just in a cry of humility, just says, Lord, you've shown great mercy to my father. Just all the days of my father, you were merciful and gracious to him. And you've shown mercy and grace to me and that you've made me king after my father. And so in that just prayer of thanksgiving, he cries out and he says, Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king now instead of my father David, but I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. You ever feel like that? I'm like a little kid. I don't know my left hand from my right. I don't know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Now listen to what he asks for. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, do you want wisdom? You know, do you want power? Do you want eternal life? I don't know, whatever. What do you want? Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm like a king here of this great people, the children of Israel, the people of God. I don't, even, I don't know what I'm doing. Give me an understanding heart. Give me the ability to discern between good and evil. I want to be able to lead your people, Lord. Help me with that. Essentially, he's asking for wisdom here. And it says there in 1 Kings chapter 3 that the Lord heard that cry and it pleased him. And so he said, because you have asked for wisdom and not for money or length of days because you've asked for this so that you could lead my people i'm not only going to give you wisdom and understanding i'm going to give you the things that you haven't asked for as well thus solomon became one of the wisest men to ever live a, a man that kings would come and visit just to glean from him the queen of sheba would come the wisest man to ever live except for one Jesus Christ. And Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, you know, the, the queen of Sheba came from the south to come and visit and to riddle, you know, pose all these riddles and things to Solomon. But I'm telling you that one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the true and better Solomon. All of the wisdom that Solomon had, and we know he messed up big time and acted the fool later on in his life. All of the purity of the wisdom is shown in the life and the actions of Jesus Christ. Solomon is a type of the one to come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Jesus has become Wisdom from God. Now Solomon had it given to him. But Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And when we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that wisdom is given to us through the Spirit of God. James will, will tell us in our scriptures today what is pure wisdom from above. The pure wisdom from above comes from the one who came from above, Jesus we're to ask for this wisdom. Flip back just a page in your Bible to James 1.5. Now, the context here is that we're to count it all joy if we fall into various trials, knowing that the Lord is working through trials and tribulation. And then we will need wisdom in those trials. Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. 
and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You know, Solomon had never had the book of James to read, but he knew to ask for wisdom and that the Lord would give it liberally. And indeed, the Lord did. When we come to those times where we need wisdom from above, we're to ask in faith without doubting. The opposite of faith is doubting. The opposite of faith is hesitation. In the midst of the trial that you're in, in the midst of the circumstance you're in, today, cry out for wisdom and cry out in faith. Certainly, as Jesus says, when we cry out for, uh, when we have faith, we can cry out and say to the mountains, be removed and cast into the sea, Mark 11 tells us. And if we don't doubt in our heart, but believe that the things we say will be done, the Lord will do whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask, Jesus says, when you pray, believe you will receive them and you will have them. And the Lord puts big stock in prayers that are prayed in faith. Now, just a quick side note, many people have taken a verse like Mark eleven twenty two through 24, and they've tried to use it for all sorts of selfish, carnal purposes. I can ask for anything I want and I'll have it. Woohoo! James is going to say later, man, you have not because you ask not. And even when you do ask, you don't have it because you want to spend it on your own pleasures. No. And the Lord, in the context of Mark chapter 11, has in mind the furtherance of the gospel among the nations. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write in their commentary, the verse concerning moving mountains only generalizes the assurance which seems to show that it was designed for the special encouragement of evangelistic and missionary efforts, while this is a directory for prevailing prayer in general. Man, what does the Lord desire in our big prayers of faith? Not that we would satisfy our own fleshly desires, but for we would pray great prayers of faith in evangelistic efforts. And so it comes down to the root of everything. So why would we pray for wisdom to build up our own kingdom? At the heart of it, it would be that we would be able to further the gospel, to take the good news of Jesus among the nations, that God would be glorified. We're going to see that later on in our chapter. But today you would come to this place in all sorts of circumstances and trials and relational issues, needing wisdom today. Today, ask the Lord for wisdom and receive it in faith. Wisdom is the principal thing. In 1636, Harvard University was founded. And by 1642, Harvard had a student handbook that was published. And every student's hand, the handbook, called the student to be, and I quote, plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay hold of Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Harvard University, 1642, lay hold of Christ as the foundation of all sound knowledge. Where do we get our wisdom? Where do we get our understanding? In Jesus. He's the source of knowledge. He's the source of wisdom. Well, Harvard began to deviate from that grand vision. And so Yale was formed. And in the days of Jonathan Edwards, Yale began to deviate from such an incredible gospel-centered vision. And so Princeton was formed. Thus enters in our depraved condition where we will so often default in turning away from Christ-centered wisdom to embrace the wisdom of this world. So much so that the current professor of Harvard writes, Things divine have been central neither to my professional nor my private life. In other words, Issues of divinity have not influenced my professional or my personal life. This is a guy that does not trust in the living God, the God of the Bible. He hasn't read the 1642 handbook from Harvard. But James is going to tell us that true wisdom from above is just like true faith. 
It will be vital, practical, and visible. James has been telling us that if a man would say, I have faith, James would tell him, show me your faith then. Show me it by the works that you're living out. He says the same thing about wisdom. A man might say, I'm very wise. Show me your wisdom. And we have a test here in James 3, 13 through 18, a test for this individual's true wisdom. True wisdom, just like true faith, is vital, practical, and visible. All of our right conduct will flow from right thinking. Wisdom. It's to be seen in the living of our life. When you think of wisdom today, don't think SAT scores or gray matter or mental capacity. Think living it out. Think the application of the knowledge of the Lord. Psalms 1 starts out with the description of a wise man. Blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Psalm 1 shows us a wise man, and it's seen in his actions. You can tell a wise man by where he walks, by where he sits, by where he stands, the progression of his actions. That's how we know he's wise. You also want to know there's a huge distinction between wisdom and education. Parents and schools and politicians are all concerned about education, and it does have its good place. But the wisdom from James cares about the purposes of God and how to fulfill these purposes. And so our text today, verses 13 through 18, shows us that faith, true faith, produces wisdom. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Am I operating in wisdom in this life choice? Your true wisdom can be shown through the behavior as you're living out life. Have your behaviors been done in a form where wisdom was shown in humility as it has a bridled strength about it? Look at your conduct. Maybe you have the NIV version and it speaks of behavior. You can see someone is wise by their behavior. Or maybe a new revised version, living the good life. The good life. King James version, if you're King James are out there. It says, let them show by good conversation. Which would make sense in context of the earlier parts of chapter 3. That the tongue is this little member that boasts great things and it is an unruly evil and it, has a, it comes from the source of our spring of our heart. And it is set on fire by hell. Oh man, if a man can control his tongue, it shows that he's controlled by the Spirit of God. So a good tongue will show good wisdom. Let him show by meekness and gentleness of wisdom when we see meekness it's more than humility it speaks of a bridled power just as a horse is so strong and is so powerful and yet that strength is reserved underneath the control of the rider through the bit and the bridle jesus says blessed are the meek meekness is not weakness someone once said it's not what he's talking about here you can be a very strong person, but that power must be bridled and brought into submission to the Spirit of God. So James is saying, you say you're wise, let me see it in your behavior, in your conversation, in your conduct, in your gentleness. That's where we'll see wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. These previous verses tell us that the heart is like a spring of water that bubbles up. It bubbles up water within it. If it's a bitter heart, bitter things will come from it. This is seen primarily from the speech that comes from our mouth. If our heart is sweet, sweet water will flow. It'll have blessings and word of edification and comfort coming out. But if our heart is bitter... It'll spew forth the type of wisdom that James is speaking forth here. It'll be bitter. Those words will be sharp and piercing. It will have the tone of jealousy. 
It'll be vicious and hostile and harsh. I want you today to think about the situation that you're in where you know you need the wisdom from the Lord. And just ask, man, what about the way I've been speaking about this situation, speaking about this person or these people? What about the decisions we're making as a church? All of these things. Man, are my words just piercing and vicious and hostile? Is there bitter envy? Is there jealousy in how I'm feeling here in this wisdom? Am I resentful? Interesting that in the Greek, literally, envy means bitter. And so James says, if you have bitter bitterness and self-seeking, it's like how a little kid talks. Bitter bitterness, bitter bitter. Betty butter butter bitter bitter. I don't know. If there's bitterness in the way you're going about this decision, this life choice, this trying to resolve conflict, whatever it might be, where you're needing wisdom, ask the Holy Spirit today to show you. I mean, it's so good. Even the psalmist, as we're reading the book of Psalms, we're studying on Wednesday nights, doesn't he say, Lord, trample down my enemies, Lord. Make my enemy fall into their own pit that they're digging for me. Take care of my enemies for me. But Lord, if I'm the one that's wrong then let everything that my enemies are planning for me come to pass. That shows such humility, doesn't that, for the psalmist to say, if I'm the one that's wrong? How about today? Would you ask yourself, Lord, maybe I'm wrong in this situation. Would you show me that? That would be a beautiful thing. Bitter bitterness. James says, watch out for it. This envy, Romans 13, 13, is all, chapter 13 of Romans is almost like a page from James brought over to the book of Romans. It's very practical, shoe-leather Christianity. Romans 13, 13 says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. And Christians, practical Christian living here, are you ready for it? Christians cannot continue to walk in bitterness and envy. If that's there, it needs to be repented of. Proverbs tells us that a sound heart is life to the body. And isn't that something we've been learning? That spring of soundness and health, so good for the body. But man, if you have envy in your heart, it's rottenness to the bones. You're you're rotting from the inside out. Proverbs 27.4 Wrath is cruel and anger a torment or torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Man, all that, man, wrath is horrible. But when someone's jealous, who can stand before that? We see the rage of Jesus' enemies and the rage of Paul's enemies. That comes from a root of envy. In Matthew 27, when Jesus stood before Pilate, verse 18, Pilate knew that the Jews had handed him over because of envy. And in Paul's testimony, Acts 13, 45, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. So envy, doesn't it lead, doesn't bitter bitterness lead to more bitterness? And it just led to the death of the Son of God. It led to his murder on a Roman cross. It led to contradicting and blaspheming as Paul's trying to share the gospel. Opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit. Search the heart. Where's their envy? A third thing here is self-seeking. Man, if in our wisdom, is there selfishness? Is there self-seeking? If you are operating in bitterness, animosity, cynicism, all around unpleasantness, and you're also looking out for just yourself, do not boast. As we see in chapter 3, the tongue is a little member that boasts great things. Don't boast and act as though you're trying to be a champion for other people and for truth and for justice. You're simply looking out for number one. Holy Spirit is able to discern that. Where there's self-seeking in these wise decisions, you'll be able to tell that it's, it's not wisdom from above. It's not godly wisdom. Philippians tells us in chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's a, di- a desire to see yourself succeed. 
but rather in lowliness of mind. The Greeks hated that phrase. It meant humble-minded. And the Greeks, man, they were philosophers. There was nothing. They didn't want anything to do with being humble-minded. And Paul says, be humble-minded. Stoop down is the picture there. And let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. That's the gospel. Man, Jesus himself is the servant of all. And he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Very interesting passage of wisdom that's demonic is very self-seeking. Very interesting as we come back from Nepal and learning quite a bit about Buddhism and You know, Nepal up in the Himalayan mountains is the source of Buddhism and Hinduism. Tibetan Buddhism and Hinduism comes from these high up places, these high up mountains. And something that we learn there is that the Buddhists, it's much different than you've heard through Hollywood. It's much different different than you've uh, learned from, uh, from other Asian countries even. When you get down to the root of Buddhism, just like when you get to the root of many other uh, false religions you see that the ultimate end is selfishness and the elevation of self. And so what you have are these Buddhist people who they're trying to live life after life after life, going through reincarnated, hopefully getting a better position, a better position, a better position until they're finally a a Buddhist lama. Uh, That is a spiritual leader in a community. Eventually, hopefully, maybe even the Dalai Lama, they'll get to be that guy. Or maybe they'd be chosen for that. Uh, eventually, after that, they get to be some sort of a god who just kind of helps control some things. But then that's not even the main aim. Their main aim is that their life would just be snuffed out as a candle is blown out. That's We just want to cease to exist. And Buddha was the leader in that. And so we follow his teachings. And something that we learned while we were in Nepal is because that is the aim. It's about me getting to where there's nobody else. And you know what? Not even me, because I don't even want to be there. What that does, it requires them to separate their hearts from the people around them. They have to disconnect from relational uh, values, things like that. You know, there's there's a level of that, but you know, that's because we're created in the image of God. God's put, but they try to separate from that. They try to disconnect from family, from friends. And as they, the more spiritual they get, they, the more isolated they become. That's why they go up and they just kind of live by themselves on a mountaintop somewhere. And no wonder Nepal has the highest rate of trafficking in the entire world. Trafficking of little children. No wonder that they have one of the most disgusting environments you'll ever see because they don't care about stewarding the environment. They don't care about taking care of the planet so that they can take, they want to care about themselves. Just focus on this, just throw this over here, throw this over there, just got to focus on this, focus on this. It's self-seeking and it's demonic. It's demonic. No wonder in the 30s, Hitler sent his SS troops over to the Himalaya mountains as Jack shared with us in November He sent his SS troops over to the Himalaya mountains, up in the mountains. It's the source of Tibetan Buddhism. And he went and he had these guys learn about the Buddhist scriptures. And it was there that they read about the 29, I know I'm saying it wrong, cocky kings. But it seems about right, doesn't it? And each one of these kings would lead a period in history where they would purge uh, purge the world of a certain people group, of of a certain class, of a certain caste. And so Hitler believed that he was the 29th cocky king. And where did he get the final solution? Where did he get the plan of genocide against the Jews and anyone who wasn't one of the special Aryan races? Where did this plan come from? It came from Buddhism, and it came from the Himalayan mountains where Buddhism comes from. That's where this grand plan, the final solution, came from. So what is wisdom? Oh, great high leader, dictator, what is wisdom? Wisdom from above is not self-seeking. And you know what? Our God is the example of humility. He's a God who put others first. He's a God who came and laid down his life. He wants to be with us for all eternity. And the way that it just happens to be is we will glorify him. We will glorify him for all eternity. We'll be in his presence. We will enjoy him and glorify him forever. Wisdom 
from this world boasts, it lies and is deceived. Verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Consider your situation, and maybe the Lord would speak to you today. You might feel that you are walking in prudence and in insight and in sage knowledge. But when this wisdom comes from a bitter heart, harshness, envy, and a desire for yourself to be prospered, this is not heavenly wisdom or discernment. It comes from the same source as the wicked tongue in verse 6. Hell itself. This wisdom is earthly. It's immoral. It's worldly. It's sensual, which means it, it comes from our flesh. Paul would use the word carnal to speak of our flesh, not from the Lord. It comes from fleshly stuff. This word sensual gives us the hint that it's even sexual in nature. And the Greek even goes deeper that it's animate and instinctive, meaning that the dogs could make such a decision. It's carnal. And it's demonic. It's devilish. Worldly wisdom. That's what you're getting. You rely upon your own understanding. You rely upon your own strength. It's earthly. Merely earthly. It's temporal. It's carnal. And it comes from Satan. Of course, Satan was wise. He was an angel. It's devilish wisdom. Wisdom from below. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians, and if you'd like, you can just turn there in your Bible because we're going to read quite a few scriptures. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians, he contrasts as he's reasoning with these philosophers in Corinth, people who were boasting and becoming puffed up in their their sage wisdom, wisdom that was Corinthian wisdom, wisdom that was Greek wisdom. And and he would write to them and, and try to reason with them of, The difference between wisdom from this world and wisdom from above. So he says in chapter 1 verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so I want you to kind of just, maybe with your pen or maybe with your, just your mind. You might just note that already Paul is setting forth for us that the economy of the Lord is different than the economy of God. And so God's demonstration of wisdom is far different than anything that the sage philosophers of this world would ever classify as wise. And so right away, he takes the example of the cross and he says the world calls that foolishness. People that are not saved, people that are not born again, people that are perishing, that are going to hell, they call the cross foolishness. Think of C.S. Lewis writing before he was saved. He says, all this business about the dying God. How he referred to it. How foolish it is that that God would become flesh and dwell among us and die on the cross for our sins. I don't need him to die on the cross for my sins. I can make it on my own, says the philosopher. And he says, you know what? To the world, the message of the cross, it's the epitome of foolishness. But those of us who are being saved... By the gracious work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not foolishness. It's the power of God. Or the power of God to salvation as he would say in Romans. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Verse 19. And I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul just turns upside down the worldly tract concerning wisdom. And he says, you know what, man, the wisdom, the economy of the Lord is so much different than that of the world. The Lord sees it as a wise thing to use foolish people and weak people and base people and uneducated people. He's going to use those people as the spokesman. He's going to use those people to represent him. They don't know anything. Why would he use him? Because he gets the glory in it all. He's glorified, verse 31 closes with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have the comparing and contrasting, really contrasting, shown in verse 6, 2, 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Jump down to verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. By the way, uh, verse uh, 9 tells us that, uh, well, might as well go there. Although I'm not turned there, so uh, let me see if I can remember it. Uh, Eye is not seen, and ear is not heard, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And then it says in verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. As we started out this message, understanding that true wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. We know wisdom when we know Jesus Christ. And so if you come here today apart from Jesus Christ, you've never been born again, you've never been regenerated, you are still in your sins when you come here today, just know that it is an uphill battle, that the the hill will never end. You'll never find wisdom. Wisdom is found in Jesus But if you would come to Jesus, if you would come to the cross of Christ today and receive his salvation, his forgiveness, his life, if you would come and turn from your sins and come to the Lord Jesus, he will take your heart of stone out of your chest and put within you a heart of flesh that now beats and knows God and can be known by God. You will know the Lord. He will place his spirit within you. You will have relationship with Jesus. You will know wisdom. But if you're still dead in your sins apart from Christ, everything you do is from a source of bitter envy, self-seeking. It's wisdom that's from below. It's earthly. It's carnal. Socrates wrote, All of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail whenever we leave this earth. If only there were a firmer foundation on which to sail, perhaps some divine word, he wrote. (laughs) Oh, Socrates, know Jesus. Know Jesus. Know the divine word. Know the word made flesh. There is wisdom that is much more than a tiny little life raft. It's a giant Coast Guard ship ship that's come to save us. Verse 6 says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. 
We have fallen conditions laid out before us, things that we see coming from the fall in the Garden of Eating. Eating, that's what it used to be. Envy, self-seeking, confusion, and then blanket statement, every evil thing. Okay, so you think of it, if it's evil, it all comes from envy and self-seeking. Where there's confusion, where there's disorder in your decision, in this wisdom that you're seeking, may not be from the Lord. The British military wrote a directive in World War II, which they posted in the storage of all ammunition warheads. They would post these little flyers all around for the soldiers, where it's written, it is necessary for technical reasons that these warheads should be stored with the top at the bottom and the bottom at the top, in order that there may be no doubt as to which is the top and which is the bottom for storage purposes, it will be seen that the bottom of each warhead has been labeled with the word top. <laughs> you know, that's not something you want to get confused on when you're handling a giant artillery shell. It doesn't end well. Where confusion and disorder is, every evil thing, or you ESVers out there, every vile practice, or you new revisers out there, wickedness of every kind are there. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You might write this down. You might underline it. You might put a star by each point here that James is giving us that nearly matches up point by point with his half-brother Jesus' beatitudes at the Sermon on the Mount. As Begg says, the wisdom from above is not a Buddhist attempt at personal equilibrium, but is that endowment of heart and mind which comes from God given to his children in Jesus all that is necessary for the conducting of our lives in a way that is true and right and obviously true and right. The wisdom from the Lord will flow out of us. We will be living in ways that are true and right. And so we know what the wisdom from the world looks like. Envious, jealous, resentful, full of selfish motives. What does wisdom from the throne of God look like? First of all, it's pure. Or as Philip's translation says, utterly pure. Utterly pure. As opposed to worldly sensuality. Think of pure water. Those of us who went to Nepal had an appreciation for pure water. Had an appreciation for what came out of those little pumps that we would take with us so that we could drink and not get vilely sick. Purity. Wisdom is pure. It's peaceable, or it's peace-loving. The outcome of your decision will end in peace, and will have peace as its ultimate goal. The opposite is contention. Wisdom from above is gentle. It's considerate. You need to be living life among people to have this come out. This wisdom gives people the benefit of the doubt. This wisdom is not quarrelsome with people. This wisdom is willing to yield. I love this one. This wisdom is submissive. It yields to persuasion. As a wise son would yield to his father, as his father reasons with him. Or as a private would yield to his sergeant. This wisdom is willing to be persuaded by what is good and what is best. Ephesians 5.21 speaks of us submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's a fruit of the Spirit. That's, that's a mark, Ephesians 5.18 tells us, that, that this is a mark of being filled with the Spirit, is that we will be submissive to one another. We'll yield to one another. Now, perhaps in your situation, you may seem to be right or to have the correct understanding. But in an effort to win peace, there may be times where you would need to surrender or concede. 
Now, don't get me wrong and don't get James wrong. This is not unity at all costs, at the expense of truth or doctrine or theological distinctives. This would be allowed, uh, this would not be allowed in issues of uh, essential doctrine. Chapter 4 shows us that James would never tell us to yield on theological or moral issues. This wisdom is full of mercy. In your decision, are you being merciful or compassionate, full of pity towards the other party or towards the decision? Are you sympathetic and forgiving and generous? This wisdom will have good fruits come from it. Good things will come from this wise decision. This wisdom is without partiality. James has spoken towards the sin of partiality and showing favoritism to the rich, yet wisdom will not. It's without hypocrisy. In the Greek, this word is, see if I can say it right, anipokritos, which if you say it very quickly, sounds unhypocritical. Wisdom from above is unhypocritical. Heavenly wisdom lines up nearly point by point with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted. Verse 18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of this wise decision will bring fruit and growth and more fruit and more growth and more peace. As Johnny comes on up, we'll close reading the Phillips translation. And I love the way the Phillips translation interprets verse 18. Why don't we go ahead and set our things aside and we'll stand and have the worship team come back up. Are there some wise and understanding men among you? then your lives will be an example of the humility that is born of true wisdom. But if your heart is full of rivalry and bitter jealousy, then do not boast of your wisdom. Don't deny the truth that you must recognize in your inmost heart. You may acquire a certain superficial wisdom, but it does not come from God. It comes from the world. It comes from your own lower nature, even from the devil. For wherever you find jealousy and rivalry, you will also find disharmony and all other kinds of evil. The wisdom that comes from God is first utterly pure, then peace-loving, gentle, approachable, full of tolerant thoughts and kindly actions, with no breath of favoritism or hint of hypocrisy. Now listen to this. And the wise are peacemakers, who go on quietly sowing for a harvest of righteousness in other people and in themselves. What's the end of us having wisdom from above? Oh, I made the right decision. Oh, that all turned out well. What's the end of it? The end of us having wisdom isn't for our own personal end and gain, It's for the sowing forth of righteousness. It's for gospel proclamation. It's for telling the world of the wisdom of God. As Psalm chapter 67 tells us, it's for declaring to the nations his salvific ways, his ways of salvation, that they might know them and that they might rejoice in them. And so at the heart of our wise decisions... Is it pure? Is it peaceable? Is it good? Is it gentle? All of those things. But James closes with it, and so should we. Is all of this peace and goodness and reconciliation and advancement and all of that, will it end with sowing forth fruit? Sowing forth fruit. Sowing more fruit here for his kingdom here in Prineville in the regions around us, in the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what the end is. For the glory of God, amen. Let's close in prayer. Let's close in song. And maybe you're here today. And just when you came through these doors, you were, you were not a Christian. 
You're not a believer in the Lord Jesus. You've never been born again. And yet you heard today that to have true wisdom, you need to know Jesus. And you need to make a decision that seems so foolish to the world, but today God is calling you to come to the cross, to come to the place where the God-man, Jesus Christ, willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice where he took upon him all of our sin. He paid a debt he didn't owe. That debt was yours. And if you would come to him today, not only would you have your debt forgiven, but he would pour out upon you spiritual treasures, a wealth from heaven upon your life and upon your heart. Would you come to Jesus today and just as a little child receives a gift in simplicity of heart, today would you receive the gift of salvation that's found in Jesus Christ? If you would just receive that gift today, he would do a work of his spirit in your heart. He would give you that new heart that we spoke of earlier that now is no longer of stone, but it's of flesh and it beats and it knows God and can be known by God and can make wise decisions, can be about His mission that He's been about from all eternity. If you're here today and you've never known Jesus, we invite you to know Jesus and call upon Him. Just say, Lord Jesus, that's me today. I need you. I am walking in a life that is just, it has an end in death. And I can see it now. I see my own heart. A heart that is so prone to bitterness and envy and just promoting myself. Rather than loving others and living for God. Just come to Jesus today. Receive the indwelling spirit of God. He will change you. He will change your affections. He will change your mind. He will change your heart. He'll change your life. Maybe you're here today and you're just in the middle of a life situation. Decisions need to be made. Circumstances are rough. I need the wisdom from God. We encourage you today to repent as we come to the communion table and remember Jesus. As we examine Jesus and remember, he's the source of wisdom. See how he laid his life down. We remember his body and we remember his blood. We remember his sacrifice. And if you see in yourself today any wickedness, any evil, bitter bitterness, any self-seeking, turn from that today before you partake of communion. And then receive into yourself afresh today a proclamation of the death and burial of the Lord Jesus. Come forward in your time during this song. Receive the elements of communion. Cry out to the Lord for wisdom found in Jesus Christ. Let's remember him today.